Welcome, screensavers. I'm Michael Gallat. I'm Matt Sturdivant. I'm Tyler Sutkus. Together, we host the Silver Screensavers Podcast, a show about the world of cinema and a celebration of our love of movies. In honor of Tyler's upcoming birthday, it's a Coen Brothers episode. Woo woo! First, we're giving you our top five Coen Brothers movies. Then we're discussing the new Joel Coen solo movie, The Tragedy of Macbeth, a black and white Shakespeare adaptation starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. But first, as always, it's our weekly watch list. Matt, what have you been watching this week? Um, I haven't really watched too many films besides brushing up on my Coen Brothers stuff, but I did watch a few things. I watched some King of the Hill reruns. Um, King of the Hill is, you know, the classic animated adult sitcom from Mike Judge, endlessly quotable. Dang it, Bobby is probably in my top five most quoted things of all time. Um, then I don't know you, that's my purse. (laughs) I, I, I say that whenever people call me at work and I don't recognize the number. Every time, every time. Do you pick um, up and say that? No, I say that before oh. I pick up. <laughs> I mean, one of these days I might slip up, who knows. But, um, yeah. I've also been keeping up with Book of Boba Fett. And honestly, I feel like that's been staying consistently good. I've been a fan of it since episode one. Um, another one where you get all the toxic Star Wars fans coming out of the woodwork to crap on it, which is disappointing to see. Um especially with this last episode with the rainbow-colored Vespa speeder bikes. <laughs> um, I personally didn't have a problem with it. I mean, what do you expect Star Wars to just be drab and colorless the entire time, always? Like, um, I mean, even on Tatooine, like, you're telling me there aren't people that mod their speeders, or there shouldn't be people that mod their speeders? Um Although they were very Back to the Future Part 2-esque looking. And I did, yeah, it did look a little goofy, but I don't think that's a reason to discount the whole show. Um, I also watched one episode of Peacemaker so far, which is the spinoff series from from James Gunn on HBO Max that's directly spun off from The Suicide Squad from last year. And after one episode, I'm hooked. I can't wait to get cracking into more. That intro theme song um, is definitely one of the best series intros in quite a while. And if you see it online, if you look it up and look up the Peacemaker intro, if you watch that and you're not all in on the show without watching anything besides that, I don't know what to tell you. All right, Tyler, how about you? So I also watched Peacemaker. I watched the first three episodes that were released, and I have to agree, it's a really fun show. Um, definitely got that James Gunn influence in it, so I, I'm enjoying that. Curious to see where it goes. Interesting plotline setup. It's just fun. It's stupid, but it's just a lot of fun watching it. Um, I, I also watched The Book of Boba Fett, and well, I, you know, I, I agree there's some ridiculous criticism out there about it. I, I am just losing the show right now. Like, I, the reason I think, and it's not because, like, ah, women in Star Wars, I don't care about that. What I care about is just, like, these are crime lords, and they're just waiting for things to happen. <laughs> like, they're not doing anything, they're just sitting around, and people are coming up to them, and that's the issue. <laughs> I mean, it, isn't that what Jabba did, though? I get, well, I mean, we didn't see Jabba that much. This is focusing on them, and so far they've done basically nothing other than, like, people come up to them and be like, no, this is my land. Which, you know, whatever, but it's just just kind of slow right I mean, now still, for me. 
I mean, it wouldn't be the first Disney Plus series that started out slow and then picked up and ended with a bang. So I'm I'm optimistic. I'm holding out hope. Fair enough. I also saw Scream, which we'll talk about next week. I still yeah. have yet to see that. I can't wait. You can. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I saw, guys, I finally saw West Side Story. This is obviously the remake. Uh, well, not a remake. It's based on the 1957 stage musical. This one directed by none other than Steven Spielberg and written by Tony Kushner. Matt, I know you saw this, Tyler. You have not, correct? Correct. So for the first two hours of this, and this is well over two hours, I was blown away. I was floored. I was thinking, just give this all the Oscars. This is a movie with a capital M. I have not seen anything like this in quite a long time. Scene after scene of me being amazed. The production designed by Adam Stockhausen and Raina DeAngelo just feels so complete and immersive and there's something so cinematic about it. Uh, the cast, Rachel Zegler's voice was uh, surprisingly impressive. Not surprising because I didn't think she couldn't sing. I just never heard her before. Um, she crafted her own version of the Maria character, which I thought was great. There's really stupendous performances from Ariana DeBose, David Alvarez, Mike Feist, Rita Moreno. Ansel Elgort, I didn't mind. I didn't think he was bad. I thought his acting wasn't wasn't terrible. He's not the best singer, um, but no. it, it didn't bother me. You know, it, it didn't take away anything. They took this remake opportunity and made some positive changes to the script. I thought there were others that could have been made um, that they didn't. I understand maybe you want to stay somewhat true to the original show, but I think there was a, a little bit more room for for changes being made. Um, the ending didn't land 100% for me, and I'm not going to say what it is. I mean, I think a lot of people already know what it is, but I won't talk about this one quite yet. But it didn't didn't get all the way 100% there for me, especially after what I had seen for the first two and a half hours. But especially once Oscar season comes very soon now, I'd really love to carve out some time to talk about this one more. Uh, Matt, you enjoyed this, correct? I did. Um, and I do have a couple things I want to add to that. Um, first of all, I like that they were able to bring Rita Moreno back and incorporate her into the story. You know, what, six, 50, 60 years later? 50 years or 60 1957 so about 65 okay well either way to be able to bring her back and fold her into the story and have it make you know be a nice nod to the original i enjoyed that quite a bit and i actually the ending did just fine for me i thought that the, that it landed just fine i was also feeling very emotionally fragile that weekend so i might have been a little more sensitive that, to it than usual but um yeah i really did enjoy it myself so I gotta agree with everything you said there. Yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts that I'd love to discuss. So perhaps on a future episode. But I also watched Prayers for the Stolen. This is available on Netflix. It's Mexico's international feature entry for the Oscars. It was shortlisted. It's about three girls who grow up in a rural town that is heavily affected uh, by drug wars and human trafficking. This is written and directed by Tatiana Hueso and based on the book by Jennifer Clement. Uh, this. This movie feels very naturalistic. All the performances are very good. There's some some great exploration of how to compromise your happiness and relationships, knowing that you're in a situation where you can't always be exactly the kind of person you want to be. 
Uh, as a viewing experience, I didn't enjoy it very much, I have to say. It just didn't really click with me. I can't say that's anything wrong with the movie because uh, it's a very well-made film, but it, it certainly wasn't my favorite. I'm trying to get through the international entrance before the nominations come out, but it's difficult because um, a lot of them aren't going to come out until like the next couple of months. So I'll, I'll try with that, but I don't know if it's going to happen. All right, we'll skip movie news for this week. Maybe something will happen next week. But for now, we're going to move to our favorite Coen Brothers movies. And before we list them, I'll ask you guys, and Tyler, I'll start with you. I think you're the biggest fan of the three of us. What do you think of when you think of the Coen Brothers? Well, I really think of kind of like a blend of drama and comedy. Like, you know, this black comedy they kind of style they kind of have. And um, it's just like you have these ki- They often focus more on the characters than the plot. You have these fleshed out, often um, flawed characters, and um, you know it's just a style that like it's hard to describe, but you can like across several genres you recognize it. Like like I've said the things like oh this feels like a Coen Brothers movie. And I don't really under like know exactly what that means, but you just like you know it when you watch Coen Brothers movies. You you sense that style even if they're doing a comedy, a drama, a noir, a thriller. Like it just persists through. So it's really interesting for a directorial team to be able to carry a style through so many genres and tones of movies. Agreed. Matt? I totally agree. I do think that they do have their own flair about, like, when you see a Coen Brothers movie, I do get that same notion of, like, oh, this was this a Coen Brothers movie? It seems like one. Uh, much like a Wes Anderson or, like, a Ridley Scott um and that they each, they kind of have their own flair that they take to things across genres. Um, personally, I think their period dramas are their bread and butter. Like some of my favorite ones that we'll get into later are all period drama work of theirs. Um, and again, like these other prolific directors, I like that they do very well at retaining frequent collaborators across their movies too. You know, you got Jeff Bridges, you got John Goodman, Tim Blake Nelson, Francis McDormand, John Turturro, Josh Brolin, Elizabeth Marvel, just to name several of them. Um, they, they just have very few misses in their catalog. And also, in several of their movies, they, um, they always come up with such good earworms. Like, some of the best, like, re- either renditions of a classic song or original songs, like, multiple movies that I'm going to have in my list have songs that every so, every so often I always get them stuck in my head. Um, and I think that that's kind of what I, those are the points that I kind of take from their work as a whole. Uh, please, Mr. Kennedy being at the top of that list of the songs <laughs> that you get stuck in your head. Yeah. Yes. Right. Followed very closely by I am a man of constant sorrow. <laughs> I agree. I you guys read my mind about you know applying their sensibilities across genres. Um, they always like enter a traditional genre, whether it be crime, gangster, or classic Hollywood, and they put in their own quirky characters. Who, no matter how stupid their characters are, and their characters are often stupid, they're always the most articulate people that I have <laughs> ever heard. Uh, that's. I think what I like most about them is that they don't often do the same kind of movie twice in a row. Uh, they have a quality that I don't think all filmmakers achieve, and that's they're, they're credible being completely serious, outrageously com- comedic, 
or a mixture of both. It's cool how they can carve out humor out of the darkest situations. Um, despite the variety, there are certain recurring elements in their work that I'd like to discuss as we get into our list. Matt, as you mentioned, the the collaborators, they have done eight movies with Frances McDormand, Frances McDormand being Joel Cohen's wife. Um, and the tragedy of Macbeth was the you know kind of semi ninth one, but it's only Joel, Joel Cohen. So yeah, they I, and I love all their collaborators. I think George Clooney, I think my favorite work of his is usually through the Cohen brothers, and I like George Clooney a lot. But without further ado, let's go into the list. Matt, or I'll say Ty, eh, Tyler. What's your number okay. five? Okay, I'll give. I have two tied for number five, but I just want to preface this by saying this was the hardest thing I ever had to do was limit <laughs> this to five. I, I had like Inside Lewin Davis took that off, uh, Barton Fink took that off, A Simple Man took that off. This was very tough, and I still ended up with two in this spot because I couldn't narrow it down. And uh, I have their first, actually the first two movies uh, here, Blood Simple and Raising Arizona. And Blood Simple, if you watch that after seeing other Coen Brothers movies, you're really kind of surprised because it's definitely not like their normal style obviously they're just starting out i think uh paul thomas anderson had pretty similar with his first movie very different style um but it's this stylish noir um you know it's this bar the story is basically a bar owner hires a private detective to kill his wife who's having an affair with another man and it just ends up with the all these twists and turns the story is so engaging the performances this is francis mcdormand's feature film debut um, this is how Joel Cohen met her. They got married. They're still working together today. Um, but just blown away. And M. M. Emmett Walsh plays a, a private detective, the sleaziest character I've ever seen on screen. And it turns out like the character was written with him in mind. He didn't even have an audition. They just offered him the role. And he, he nailed it. I mean, just every time he's on screen, you just kind of feel like like gross, kind of, like the way he plays it. So that's it's definitely an interesting movie. And then Raising Arizona, which I'll leave for you to talk about later, Mike. Uh, just <laughs> wild, like you mentioned earlier, they they don't make the same movie twice. And that's, you go from this violent, dark noir to <laughs> Raising Arizona, just a wildly stark contrast. Yeah, it's interesting with Blood Simple how, like, especially towards the end, which I won't give away, but, like, they re- kind of refuse to give you the ending that you're expecting or maybe that you want. And you, you know that there's something unique about these guys, even from the first movie. So, yeah. Matt, Matt what's your number five? All right. For number five, I put down The Ballad of Buster Scruggs from a couple years ago. Um, like I've said in the past, I am a huge fan of an anthology movie. Me too. I, especially when they're well done. Um, this one, I will say it, not every segment was a hit for me. None of them were necessarily bad, but none of them really... Which was your least favorite? Probably the impresario one. Is that the Liam Neeson one? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, so it follows six tales of life and violence in the Old West following a singing gunslinger, a bank robber, a traveling impresario, an elderly prospector, a wagon train, and a perverse pair of bounty hunters. Um, I'd say my top two out of these are probably the singing gunslinger one. We got, that's Buster Scruggs himself, Tim Blake Nelson. Um that one and probably the elderly prospector played by Tom Waits. Nick Nolte, you mean? Nick Nolte. What? <laughs> <laughs> ah, what's the D? 
difference anyway. Check I out our licorice it. pizza Paul Thomas Anderson <laughs> episode for that that confusion. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, it definitely features multiple of their frequent collaborators. Um, Tim Blake Nelson, Harry Melling, who comes up in Tragedy of Macbeth later. If nothing else, it gave us the first time meme (laughs) (laughs) with with the screen grab of James Franco at the gallows. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's probably, it's hard for me to say it's their best work, but I didn't, like I said, I do love a good anthology and it's definitely worth, worth pointing out, I think in their, in their, um, of all their work, it's worth putting out. Yeah, I just want to add on there just some scenes that I just want to mention um, in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs itself when Clancy Brown is aiming the gun at him and he keeps kicking the table oh, yeah. and shooting. I lost at that moment. <laughs> and then another one was when in the James Franco one when the, the bank teller comes out covered in pots and pans. Firing the gun at him. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, um, but I do remember enjoying it. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned maybe not their best work, but I think these are two filmmakers that like don't like you said before don't have many misses. So I, same, it was it was difficult to put my list together, uh, but I wanted to represent a couple of their movies that maybe aren't discussed as much. For number five, I did something similar to Tyler, and I had dual picks. This is Burn After Reading and Hail Caesar. I paired these two together because they're both the same sort of purely comic style uh, that they've done a few times throughout their careers. I like both of these films a lot, and I think both of them are like a hair away from being great movies. I don't like know what the missing ingredient is with these ones, but I know that there is something that I think would really push it over the edge. Burn After Ring is from 2008. It's about two gym employees and government workers who get caught up in a web of confusion and extortion when what are thought to be government secrets fall into the wrong hands. Brad Pitt gives a genuinely great comedic performance. I think he's always been pretty underrated for that. He's so good at facially characterizing the people that he plays. I've always been so curious if you watch him in like the Tree of Life. He does these faces that he never does with other characters. Uh, Francis McDormand is so funny and like so much more effectively exaggerated and histrionic than she usually is. Uh, the movie is worth it for them alone, but it also has the most jittery George Clooney performance that you've seen. <laughs> John Malkovich just going crazy and Tilda Swinton being maybe the only sane person in the cast, but it doesn't really matter because everyone around her is crazy. So she doesn't can't really uh, have control over the crazy people. It also comments on like how the movie how this sort of movie with this many plots gets confusing and you forget about characters and plot lines while you're focused on others and this one made me think of one of their trends and guys tell me if you've noticed this or not the coens love to explore infidelity it shows up again and (laughs) again yeah it's often used as a central plot device it's like everybody is cheating on their spouse (laughs) always always it's crazy. Uh, and then my, my other number five is Hail Caesar. That is from 2016. It's a tale of old Hollywood studio system. It's a mosaic, big cast kind of thing. Josh Brolin is a fixer for performance scandals amongst the stars. 
He's the POV character of sorts who has various misadventures with stars, film workers, all this kind of stuff. It's really just one funny scene after another. There's an excellent dance number in the middle of it that they show you the whole thing of. Uh, the scene where all the religious leaders are talking about the depiction of God and Jesus is hilarious and really smart. So I, I like both of those movies, and I don't want to say I wish they were just a little bit better, but I think that they could have, I don't know, they could have been really great movies. I don't know what it is, though. Tyler, what's your number four? My number four is The Big Lebowski. Um, I think everyone knows a little bit about The Big Lebowski through pop culture references, you know, the dude abides, all that. But just in case no one knows, the, the basically the plot is that like a case of mistaken identity leads to the dude, played by Jeff Bridges, getting caught up in a kidnapping and ransom plot, and it just kind of unravels from there. And I think this is the perfect example of like what I mentioned earlier, of like the plot not mattering. The plot is so intricate, and like I was rewatching it recently, and I forgot like all the things that came up in this, but what you really focus on is the characters. Obviously, you have Jeff Bridges as uh, the dude, um, the main role, but uh, John Goodman as Walter Sobchak just carries every scene he's in incredible um steve buscemi who's not used as much still like he he takes everything out of that role um especially in his interactions with john goodman it's just incredible to watch a funny movie where you really focus on the people and the plot's kind of inconsequential to everything with all the twists and turns and i think that's like a style of the coens where like not many directors can do that where like it, they can have this convoluted plot and you're not even paying attention to that. You're paying attention to, like, the characters themselves and enjoying yourself. Yeah, I agree. I This is one of those movies where I think I've just, like, watched it to death. Where it's, <laughs> it is so good. It's, it's almost like Jaws, where it's so, like, big in my mind that when somebody asks, like, oh, what's a great movie? I'm not going to name Big Lebowski or or another movie of that kind because like they just seem so obvious. Yeah, but yeah, I, I, I think it's them. hilarious. The plot, like you said, almost seems like a necessary evil in that case. But every performer is firing on all cylinders. It's great. Matt, what's your number four? So what I put down for number four, I put down a note. <clears throat> Excuse me. So my number four, I put down No Country for Old Men, which I felt kind of bad putting that as low as I did. Um, because I mean, I, I know it probably needs no introduction is probably one of the, some of their best work. Um, and I can't deny that. Um, for anyone that might not know the plot of this movie is violence and mayhem ensue after a hunter stumbles upon a drug deal gone wrong and more than $2 million in cash near the Rio Grande. Um, stellar performances by all of the actors in it. Tommy Lee Jones, Javier Bardem, Josh Brolin, Woody Harrelson, among others. Um, like I said, I feel bad putting it as low as I did, but I just didn't feel like I could speak as strongly on this one as some of the other picks that I have coming up. Um, like I said, all the performances were solid, especially Javier Bardem, who, while this movie isn't like your typical, I wouldn't say it's like your typical thriller, like it's not a horror movie, but Javier Bardem's performance as, um, as Anton Chigurh is just truly one of the most terrifying performances of all time. And he just does, he plays it so well. Um, but then if I recall, I haven't seen it in a while, but if I recall, they do still blend that little bit of dark humor in with a lot of the plot and the events that unfold in the movie. 
And another one where, like, the plot is almost second to the characters, like you were saying, Tyler. Yeah, in a way, definitely. I, I love that one. It's going to show up on my list later. Uh, but my number four is True Grip. This is from 2010. This is based on the novel by Charles Portis. There was also the famous 1969 John Wayne film. Uh, this is about a girl who hires a washed-up lawman to find the outlaw who killed her father. Uh, this this movie, oh God, we're going to sound like broken records, but this is all about the performances. This is the first time that I was introduced to Haley Steinfeld as Maddie Ross, and I was in awe of how good she was. In several scenes, she's holding her own with Jeff Bridges, who's cast so perfectly as Rooster Cogburn, and Matt Damon does what he does and reinvents who we think he is every time he's in a role. He's playing LaBeef here. Again, it's, it's a role like he hasn't played before. Uh, the scene when later on when Rooster is carrying Maddie to get her help at night is so well done. The music in this done by Carter Burwell is maybe one of my favorite Cohen music uh, besides one of my later picks. There's something so uniquely beautiful about this one that I can't quite put my finger on, even amongst their own filmography. But yeah, I, I really, really like this one. All right, Tyler, number three. My number three is Miller's Crossing, uh, 1990. I think this is honestly, in my opinion, one of the Cohen's most underrated movies. I feel like not many people talk about this movie, even though it's very well acclaimed. I think it, I, in my opinion, it got overshadowed by the good by Goodfellas in the same year. Um, but it is a also a gangster film, and it's it's basically about here. Get the plot right here. Two rival gangs are fighting for power with Gabriel Byrne playing both sides, basically. And I think it's just an incredible performance, especially from Gabriel Byrne, to see him in this. He's got Steve Buscemi returning again. Um, and just there's one scene that I just want to call, and it's just Gabriel Byrne and Steve Buscemi in the woods. And I don't want to spoil it, but just an incredible performance from both of them. If you if you get watch anything from this movie, just that scene. It's incredible. Um, and then there's even call back to that later in the movie, same scene. So I think it works really well. And just the performances are incredible. It's a great um, like return to noir for them. And I think more people should watch it, honestly. Yeah, uh, I love John Polito in this movie. Uh, he's so funny and then turns so aggressive so suddenly. Uh, Marsha Gay Harden's really good in this movie, too. This what are the scenes in this in which Gabriel Byrne goes to fight Mike Starr and Mike Starr is supposed to beat him up? And then, you know, it's this really tense scene. He's about to get beat up by this big guy. And then Gabriel Byrne hits him with a chair. And he's like, oh, Jesus, man. And he, like, cries and runs out <laughs> of the room. Like, that's exactly what I was talking about in the beginning when it's like, it's that traditional genre infused with this sort of odd, humorous thing. Yeah, I, I like Miller Crossing a lot, too. Matt, what's your number three? My number three is Inside Lewin Davis. Um, it follows a week in the life of a young singer as he navigates the folk scene of Greenwich Village in 1961. Um, it features stellar performances by both Oscar Isaac and Carey Mulligan, among others in that movie. Uh, the story is interesting because it brilliantly displays the vicious cycle of being a broke, starving artist. It, and it really poses the dilemma of commitment to your craft and pursuing a passion versus 
needing to survive and being able to survive. Um, it's like you can only have one or the other, um, and one doing one kind of depletes the other. And so then ultimately it's just a vicious cycle. Um, that, that struggle is perfectly demonstrated with the please Mr. Kennedy scene in that, well, the whole sequence, but the, <laughs> um, for those of you who are, who are not familiar with it, um, this is a scene that it features Oscar Isaac, Justin Timberlake, and Adam Driver doing a rendition of a song called Please Mr. Kennedy. And I I always think about this song every now and then because Tyler, I think you were the one that actually first told me about it. After <laughs> this so. was after seeing Star Wars The Force of Weekends, which Force Awakens. <laughs> the Force Awakens. <laughs> that would be appropriate to the film trilogy that we got <laughs> yeah no looking back for sure um no but so we so tyler's the one that pointed it out to me not long after seeing for star wars the force awakens um because as we know oscar isaac and adam driver were both in star wars the force awakens as poe dameron and kylo ren respectively so it features Again, Oscar Isaac, Adam Driver, and Justin Timberlake doing a rendition of this song. Um, but it's really just Oscar Isaac and Justin Timberlake doing the majority of the actual singing, whereas Adam Driver is just kind of doing these backing vocals that are just so campy and goofy. He's just he's just like making these weird <laughs> like noises. He's like like he's like outer space. Good and it's just <laughs> and it's just so it's so like funny. I, I, it's just, but it's such an earworm. Um, but all that aside, that whole sequence was pretty impactful because in the context of the movie, minor spoilers, um, essentially for doing that recording session, Lewin Davis played by Oscar Isaac, he essentially gives away the rights to his participation in the song in order to, um, I can't remember if it was just to buy food or what what he was doing. He was basically, he basically had bills to pay, so he basically had them cut him a check instead of giving taking the royalty option. Um, so then that that song ended up blowing up, but because he took the lump sum, he hardly saw any of the success from his participation in that song. Um, and I thought that scene, if nothing else, that sequence was one of the most impactful parts of that movie. You guys remember when we, when Justin Timberlake's serious actor was on the scene? I'm going to give you guys a movie to watch. Yeah, about, what, 2013? When this one came out? Yes, it was. But <laughs> what came out earlier this year, well, 2021, so last year, it was a movie called Palmer. It was on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, it's a serious Timberlake role. I enjoyed the crap out of that movie, and I like Timberlake in a lot. I think he's really good, uh, so I, I want to see more dramatic chances for him. Uh, I definitely recommend Palmer. Can I say something oh, real go quick? Ahead. I just want to issue a correction because I knew I'd mess that up, but uh, in, in Miller's Crossing, I said Gabriel Byrne and Steve Buscemi. It's Gabriel Byrne and John Turturro in that scene, not oh, Steve Buscemi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, immediately when I said it, I'm like, wait a second, that's not right. So, uh, close enough. <laughs> I mean, Steve Buscemi was pretty good in Transformers, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah, yes. Uh, oh, stop. <laughs> he transformed like into John Turturro. That's how good. <laughs> although, he, although, okay, yeah, he wasn't in Transformers, but he was in Spy Kids. 
I think Steve Buscemi was glad he didn't have to stand under those big robot balls in the, in the sequel. <laughs> like, what? What is going on here? This is awful. As I, as so, I, so, I so texted, is the ambulance going to have giant balls on it? No. I, the ambulance? Matt, I texted this to you guys uh, like a week ago, is that I realized that Ambulance, the new Michael Bay film which maybe you're tired of our excitement for, but it is saving us from another Transformers movie, at least <laughs> for now. So it's a win in my book. Yeah. Oh, enough. Uh, my number three is one we've already talked about a little bit, No Country for Old Men. I won't beat the dead horse here, but I just want to say this one is so stripped down to the bare bones, but that makes every element so entertaining, every sound, every movement. This movie has one of the freakiest jump scares that I have ever seen. Yes. It still like gets me every time. Uh, my number one is still the one from Friday the 13th, but this one is, is scary as heck. Uh, the, it really is such a good exploration of the randomness and arbitrary quality of violence in the world. Um, really just the randomness of where different lives lead, how they intersect, the irony of surrendering things to chance and fate because surrendering your fate to chance is a choice in itself to not do anything. Um, this movie is all about choices that characters make. Well, I just, you could say that about any movie, so it's a stupid analysis, but it's an excellent adaptation too. It's really hard to adapt a, a book into a, a movie this is a really great novel by Cormac McCarthy. Many of the scenes of dialogue in the movie are ripped right from the book, uh, like the coin toss scene, which I, I don't know why I find that one so mesmerizing, but I do. So No Country for Old Men is excellent. Best Picture winner, too. Tyler, what's your number two? So my number two is uh, the same movie, No Country for Old Men. So I won't, I won't talk more on what we've already said. I agree with everything that was said so far, but I just want to bring up something that... It wasn't, and you brought it up kind of with sound. And I'm a guy who loves awesome movie shootouts. Like that's that's something that when a movie does that well, I love it. And this movie has a scene which is right after the jump scare of just this suppressed handgun being fired at from an unknown source, and you just hear this like suppressed sound, and then glass shattering, tires popping. It's so visceral. And it's such an incredible use of sound design, just a dead street, no sound, except you hear that punch of the fire, the gun firing, and then just like an instant reaction of something that it hits. And it's just so incredibly done that I, I just will watch it sometimes just to see it. And just be like, that's so cool. Yeah, we don't have to, to spoil the ending, but are you guys, I know the ending was uh, maybe a bit divisive amongst, amongst watchers. Were you guys okay with the ending, or did you want something else? So I didn't like it the first time I watched it, but I definitely, after rewatches, I definitely am okay with it. It makes sense for the story, in my opinion. Yeah, I was I was fine with it. No complaints. For any Cormac McCarthy fans, I I wonder what a Blood Meridian adaptation would look like from the Coen Brothers. Because if you think if you think this one's a little cryptic, then read Blood Meridian and, and see how it is. Matt, what's your number two? So for my number two, I, I, I um, had another one that was mentioned earlier with True Grit. Um, I put it at number two because, like I said before, their their period dramas are probably my favorites of their work. Um, and this one is no exception. Right from the get-go, Haley Steinfeld as Maddie Ross just instantly 
captured my attention and and I was sold. And I'm actually looking back, I'm really bummed that she didn't get an an Oscar win for it. I forget who she lost to. I'm gonna look that up real quick. Um, but I think I think she just absolutely nailed the part, and it clearly set her on quite the trajectory as far as her career goes, deservedly so. Um, I loved her in Hawkeye from last year. Um, still trying to get into Dickinson. Not as not as big a fan of that show, but I don't know if it's necessarily my type of show, and that could be why. Um, but anyway, we're talking about Drew Grit here. Um, it, it, it goes in, I like that it went into the trope of like, which I, I can't remember if the 60s one did this too, where it's like, you're a man of true grit using the name, the name of the movie and the dialogue. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It was fun. Um, the banter, just the banter between Rooster and Maddie in this movie just felt so organic and immersive. Like you really lost the two actors in their roles and you felt like you were actually watching something that actually happened unfold. Mm. Um, that and one last thing I want to note is that much like Macbeth, which we'll talk about later, when he does period stuff, it's he when he does when they do period stuff, I feel like they do a really good job of trying to use period um, period accurate dialogue. Like a lot, there were there were a lot of there was a lot of stuff in True Grit. Like you felt like you were in the old west because of the dialogue and the writing, just as well as the scenery and the immersive scenery. I'm always fascinated by this idea, and of course we know often through like letters and stuff. So I feel like sometimes people from the past talk nothing like they we think they did from what we see well, in movies probably not <laughs> i but. feel like they if if they were able to come forward in time and watch the movie of you know the time in the past they'd be like i don't none of this was going on that's it's not how people acted i have that oscar win for you the winner for best actress in a supporting role was melissa leo for the fighter mm, i mean the fighter like was the good. fighter i i thought the fighter was fine but i don't know I can't I can't remember her I can't remember enough about it to remember if she was any better. Well, here's here's role, but this was the King's Speech year. So here are the nominees <sighs> in that category: Melissa Leo, the fighter; Amy Adams, the fighter; Helena Bonham Carter for the King's Speech; Haley Steinfeld and Jackie Weaver for Animal Kingdom. Here's the lead actor. Uh, Jeff Bridges was nominated. Jesse Eisenberg for The Social Network. James Franco, 127 Hours. Javier Bardem for Beautiful. And the winner, Colin Firth for The King's Speech. I, I like The King's Speech. I, people crap on it. I like it. I don't think it was I, the best movie of that year, but I like it. I was going to say, I, I don't think, I think maybe in that year it was fine. But the more the more I think about it, the less I like it. So I'm going to give you guys the best picture nominees and just quickly give me your winner. Here they are. Uh, the King's Speech, which was the actual winner. Black Swan, The Fighter, Inception, The Kids Are All Right, 127 Hours, The Social Network, Toy Story 3, True Grit, and Winter's Bone. What mm-hmm. wins out of that? Have you guys seen Winter's Bone? I have, years ago. What do you think of it? The year it came out. I... I barely remember it to be honest. Yeah, same with I, I me. I actually barely remember most of those movies. <laughs> yeah, except like Toy Story three. Toy Story three um, is fantastic. 
I would say Toy Story 3, honestly. <laughs> All right, fair enough. That scene when they're about to go in the incinerator. Oh, gets me my God. Time. Don't even get me started. Uh, <laughs> it, it, insane. It's so, Absolutely. so heartbreaking. I maybe swear. We, maybe we could talk about that when when uh, Lightyear comes out, which still not clear on what Lightyear is exactly. <laughs> it's very confusing. It's the fictional astronaut that the toy was based on. Did you not read Chris Evans's tweet? <laughs> Wait, so in the Toy Story world, <laughs> it's a fictional character from what? No, so supposedly this movie is the movie that's in the Toy Story world that the toy is based, based on off the toy. Of. No, so the words... toy is based off this character from this movie. Oh, so Lightyear this is... is a movie that exists in the Toy Story universe. They made the Buzz Lightyear toy off that character. This is an original so, movie believe... in this universe, and they made a toy of it. Yes, so I believe so. We so. exist in the Toy Story universe, is what they're saying. Yeah, and so they like used Andy the voice. went and saw Lightyear. <laughs> oh, he did, and they used the voice of Tim Allen instead of. Yeah, they, they couldn't hire Chris <laughs> Evans, so they got Tim Allen to do the voice of the toy. <laughs> so, do you think at the beginning we're gonna see like a little kid sitting down with popcorn to watch Lightyear, or are they just gonna start this thing off? I'm, I'm curious about that. I'm wondering about that. <laughs> And then they're going to show the trailer for the new Santa Claus series. Oh yeah, before the movie. Have they put anything out about that other than it's happening? Uh, I don't think. I don't know. Side I note: can, I, I know it. we've gone off on a bit of a tangent here, but bear with us. <laughs> Santa Claus, a bit of a disturbing concept. <laughs> oh, for sure. Santa Claus falls off the roof and dies. Does that mean that there's been a long line of Santa men? Just, like, dying in various places and whoever's there just has to, like, take over? I think that's the implication, yes. Yeah, if you if you ever have a friend that just seems to, like, you know, you don't hang out with them as much anymore, probably had to take on the responsibility of Santa Claus. <laughs> that's the most likely thing. That That's my biggest fear, is witnessing the death of Santa Claus and having to take, fulfill the role. Yeah. I close my eyes anytime I go outside and listen for jingle bells, and only when I don't hear them. Do I open my eyes? Uh, your number three was True Crit, right? That was number two. Oh, number two. I'm sorry. It's been a no, while Santa since Claus you mentioned two. it. <laughs> yeah, the Santa Claus 2. Oh, Fred Claus. Uh, my number two. Matt, you and I are switching picks. My number two is Inside Lewin Davis. As you mentioned, this is from 2013. The ambiance of this movie is unique like even to the coens it's so like comfortably somber i love folk music i don't know about you guys and there are a few scenes in here where they just let the music play um all the musical performance performers in this including oscar isaac carrie mulligan justin timberlake are so good at acting while they're singing and playing they're having interplay with the other characters as they're trying to perform for an audience i don't see that too often um, Oscar Isaac has a great presence to take us through the everyday struggles of an artist who is barely surviving, who runs into bad luck and also some personal flaws, which are kind of holding him back. One of the things that I love most is that this is a movie about failure. If you haven't seen this, and I definitely think you should, skip ahead 30 seconds or so because um, at the end, again, I'll give you another second. But I want to make this point. At the end, we have Lewin Davis performing a last song. And then he watches as Bob Dylan gets up and plays. Or who we're supposed to think is Bob Dylan. 
And most movies that are put out are about the Bob Dylans of the world. But for every Bob Dylan, there are thousands of Lewin Davises. And this was a story about one, and I always loved that. Um, John Goodman plays one of the biggest divas that have ever been put to screen. Mm-hmm. It, when Lewin says something rude to him, like stick it up your butt or whatever, and he responds about like childish threats and all this stuff, I don't know why that just gets me every single time. I love it. Uh, this is a fantastic movie. Go watch it. I recently watched it um, on Amazon Prime, so maybe it's still there. I think it is, because I was going to watch it tonight, but uh, but we had to do this. Yeah, you this. Tyler, number uh, one. That, I, didn't mean that, I didn't mean to sound, <laughs> sound like that. Uh, my number one is not only my number one Coen Brothers movie, it's one of my favorite movies of all time, and that's Fargo from 1996, which is the same year I was born. <laughs> Uh, same year. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I just think this is an incredible, like, um, from the top to bottom, just every interaction in this movie between characters is just, it's either, like, funny, um, it's it's interesting, it's just, just seeing these characters interact with each other is so well done. Um, you have the kidnapping plot, and basically you get introduced to Francis McDormand as the, I think, Brainerd, Minnesota police chief. One of the best heroes not not heroines just heroes all together in in a movie i've ever seen i i love her she's just someone that's like trying to do good um and you get peter stormare and steve buscemi as these like incompetent uh villains that really just like they're bumbling stupidity which is kind of a thing throughout the coen movies is just comically like it's comic even though this is such a like they're literally like homicides are being committed yet even and then there's this dark comedy that goes through um i don't want to spoil it but there's a scene with um well basically it's a the, a car salesman um creates a plan with these two peter stormare and steve buscemi to kidnap his wife to fake a ransom that's paid by his rich father-in-law um and obviously everything goes awry but um you have the scene between the father-in-law and steve buscemi's character and just it's such a haunting moment like for what happens but it's so there's just comedy in it and it's so shocking how well they blend that and i think it's so well done and like i said just everything in this movie is just incredible i've i've probably seen this movie like 15 times i love watching this movie um so if you haven't seen fargo i recommend going out and watching it because it it literally like you'll be blown away so i i um i also have a somewhat of a special connection to this movie. I'm surprised I didn't actually write it down in hindsight, but um, I have family that lives in Minnesota about a half hour from Brainerd. Um, So like, I'm pretty sure. So like the first time I saw this movie, um, my dad was the one that ended up showing me this movie. And um, it's just funny having like that family connection because Brainerd isn't like a huge city. Um, at least compared to other other metropolitan areas of Minnesota, you get Minneapolis, you get Duluth, but um, it's just so funny to have a, mo- a movie like this set in Brainerd, which is so close to where a lot of my family lives. It's just kind of funny to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I like how this movie uh, calls out kind of human ego and reminds us that like the world is always so much bigger than you think it is you think that you can manipulate certain variables and things are going to work out the way you want them to and there's just there's always something out there uh that's going to throw a monkey wrench into everything so i I really like this movie if you guys will go ahead 
Oh, I was just going to say, there's just one scene I wanted to mention with William H. Macy being interviewed by um, Marge Gunderson, played by um, Frances McDormand. And just, it's like, it's basically the moment where she realized, like, just goes from, like, just asking him questions to realizing he's connected. And just the facial expressions from William H. Macy stumbling all over his words as he's, like, his story's coming apart. And just then reflecting on how she's, like, reacting to it, it's, it's just incredible. Like, the performances in this movie are over the top. Mm, definitely. Yeah. If you guys will indul- indulge me for a minute. Yeah. Uh, I was looking at back at the Oscars for this one. Sorry. It's, uh, it's almost Oscar season. I'm getting excited. Frances McDormand uh, did win for this. Uh, Joel Cohen lost director. And we know who he lost to. This was another... Uh, movie that overtook the Oscars in in '97. The English Patient. It is the English Patient. Yep. Anthony Minghella won for Best Director. It's a joke. <laughs> it's, yeah, I never it's, saw it. It's a nine-hour joke. Uh, <laughs> and English Patient did win Best Picture. Fargo, Jerry Maguire, Secrets and Lies, and Shine were also nominated. Tyler, what's your number one? That was my number one. Oh, did I say Tyler? Yes. Oh, I had Matt in my mind. I don't, because I usually go Matt first. It's messing me up. All right, Matt, what's your number one? My number one is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which is based on the Odyssey by Homer. Um, It takes place in the Deep South during the 1930s. Three escaped convicts search for hidden treasure while a relentless lawman pursues them. I'll be the first to admit I didn't read the Odyssey. So I don't know how well it, like, I don't know if it's a loose adaptation or tight. I mean, obviously, an ancient Greek poet isn't going to be writing about three dudes in the Deep South, but... I don't think Mississippi was even invented at that point. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but, um, I mean, between this one and uh, Tragedy of Macbeth, I'm not going to say which one I liked better right now, but um, as far as their literary adaptations, this is... Um, this one, either this one or that one won't be my favorite. I'm trying not to give it away. Um, but either way, I digress. Um, it's got George Clooney, Tim Blake Nelson, and John Turturro as like the three convicts that escape. Um, this opening sequence just gets me every time because it's the, it's the scene of them escaping to the tune of the Big Rock Candy Mountain. And um, it's one of the most effective uses of that song I think I've ever seen in cinema. Um, the film also has a very effective use of sepia tone. Like, everything's just very, like, yellow, and, like like I said, with their period pieces, they try, they do a very good job of, like, making it... Um, using kind of period-appropriate dialogue and um, just making it feel very immersive. Um, it was excellently played by all the leads. Um, the actors were really, like, immersed in their roles. Um, as the... They come to... The, uh, known under the moniker the Soggy Bottom Boys, not to be confused with Soggy Bottom, the the Paul Thomas Anderson <laughs> film. Yeah, the original title, yeah. Yeah. Um, like I said before, there's a great rendition of I Am a Man of Constant Sorrow. Um, you know, there are many callbacks with the writing recurring either lines or motifs in this movie. Um, just, I, I could go all day about like different quotes from the movie, just quoting this movie. I think it's got some of the, some of the best writing that the Coens have done with, 
some of the wittiest writing that the Colvins have ever done. Um, especially the, the scene where they are hitchhiking and they get picked up by Babyface Nelson and he gets all mad because they called, called him Babyface Nelson. And um, they didn't realize he was the bank robber until some of the money was flying out. And then Delmar, who was played by Tim Blake Nelson, was like, uh, some of your folding money's coming out. Yeah, those, come poor, those poor cows. That was really upsetting. <laughs> yeah, th- that was that was rough. There were some, um, I will say, there were some rough scenes in this movie that um, may not be for the faint of heart. But I think it was executed very well. And... Um, and, I mean, there's also a scene with them getting beat up by John Goodman as the the Cyclops. Yeah. John Goodman <laughs> and, always um, reliable. Yeah. Um, but overall, I think it's a pretty good movie. Um, another one my, my dad introduced me to back in the day. I'm um, pretty sure it's one of his favorite movies. So I think that's kind of why I feel a stronger connection to this one to some of their other material. Um, but overall very good yeah i love the beginning of that one i was going to mention the the colors of this one too i think it's an excellent use definitely uh my number one tyler mentioned before this is raising arizona this is their second movie from 1987 it's about a career thief and a woman of the law who kidnap a baby when they can't have their own it is a ridiculous concept that is handled so well, could have gone so wrong, but it didn't. This is one of my favorite comedies ever. Nicolas Cage is high and Holly Hunter as Edwina are perfect. They're not a bad note in, in the performance. There's something ineffable about comedy. You can explain funny until you're blue in the face, but at the end of the day, you either think something's funny or you don't. And I laugh throughout this whole movie. It's clever, it's slapstick, there are long jokes like the guy who tells too many Polish jokes that are so well integrated you forget about them and then they come back later. Like I said, they took a plot that it, I feel like in a lot of other hands would have went so bad. There's so many uh, terrible directions you can take kidnapping a baby, but they made it into something funny and then ultimately very sweet. I think part of that has to do with the fact that although the characters are in conflict with each other, most of them don't have bad intentions. So they all have goodness in their hearts. They just all want different things, uh, except for the big bad guy. You know you have a good comedy when the line isn't even that funny, the jokes, but the way a character says something is full of humor. This is a rare movie where the, the narration adds to it. Uh, the ending narration is excellent. It has one of the sweetest endings of any comedy that I have seen, and I love it every time. That's Raising Arizona. Movies we did not talk about. 1991's Barton Fink. You guys fans of Barton Fink? I love Barton Fink. What do you love about it? Um, just John Turturro's performance is incredible. Um, you got John Goodman carrying it. It's been a long time since I saw Barton Fink, unfortunately. Um, but I need to rewatch it again. That wasn't one I had time for this week. But, so, um, oh, go ahead. I was just say, so Barton Fink and Inside Lewin Davis remind me of this kind of character they do where like sometimes they'll place an artist you know barton fink is a screenwriter and inside lewin davis is a musician and they'll place them next to like a straight-laced often military man and it will like show the kind of self-importance of the artist you have the scene in barton fink where like 
he's dancing at, at, and all these military men are like about to go overseas potentially to die and one of them just wants to like dance with a woman and Barton Fink's like I am God or whatever like whatever he's doing <laughs> and inside Lewin Davis you had kind of a subtler version of that but I'm sorry to interrupt what were you saying oh that was basically it oh that exact thing what that is the exact thing that i just said oh no no word, i was just oh, finishing up my thought anyway so word for word yeah <laughs> that was i was gonna say that probably. too actually that same exact thing yeah that's... <laughs> great, like great minds <laughs> yeah barton fink is i i think one of their more enigmatic uh movies especially the ending yeah and, and you know John John Good they just asked John Goodman all the time just to be a total madman and to do these crazy things all the time like when well I don't want to say too much but when there is fire in the movie it's so like I I, I always want to read up on how they did that yeah Barton Fink is really cool uh the Hudsucker proxy from 94 I have never seen this one it was fine. <laughs> it's, it's better than I think people say, but I mean, it's it's pretty forgettable when you're looking at the grand scheme of Coen Brothers films. How about The Man Who Wasn't There? Do you find that one memorable? I never saw The Man Who Wasn't There. Oh. So so it was about you then, The Man Who Wasn't There to see that movie. <laughs> exactly, yeah, I was not there to see it. This <laughs> is actually a John Cena's biopic. <laughs> Yeah, incredible black and white in the man who wasn't there, Billy Bob Thornton, a man who I feel like we just don't see a lot nowadays, unless you watch uh, Goliath. Isn't that his show on Amazon? Well, no, wasn't Prime? he? In, he was in Fargo too, though, right? He had a great role in the first season of Fargo. Oh, incredible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's more, the big bad really. of this first season. Uh, Intolerable Cruelty from two thousand three. This George Clooney and Catherine Zeta Jones. Yes, kind of divorce comedy it was kind of yeah i don't know it was one of the weaker films i never saw it so it followed intolerable cruelty with the lady killers uh which <laughs> a movie that i couldn't finish <laughs> i was saying this to tyler before is that uh the lady killers from 2004 interestingly they're tom hanks collaboration tom hanks's name is on the top of the poster so you would think Cohen's and Tom Hanks uh, match made in heaven. It, it didn't work out totally. And also, I believe this is the first time that Ethan Cohen was allowed to have director credit with Joel Cohen. So it's like you make all these incredible films for a decade and a half. And then the first director credit you get is for the lady killers. I believe the Coens wrote the script or helped write the script for Bridge of Spies, which is a Tom Hanks film. Yeah, that's true. They did. You're absolutely right. Uh, a Serious Man from 2009. I like that movie a lot. I do like that. That's definitely one of those that I was talking about earlier about the plot not really mattering because <laughs> the characters, like, that literally is, like, it, they literally admit, basically, it's meaningless, everything that's happening. <laughs> yeah, and it, it is that effect of, like, they take this serious, like, hereditary bad luck curse on this family and just make it incredibly comic and all that. Uh, I didn't know this, but apparently they helped to write Bad Santa. Oh, really? Yeah, an uncredited rewrite. How true <laughs> they... that is, I, I don't know, but that's that's incredible if that's true. Is this a, not the first time that Bad Santa has come up on, on no, our th show? Yeah, this is, the this is in our holiday show. 
Yeah. Oh, okay, that makes sense. And then, yeah, because there was the confusion about the batter Santa, which I turned out to be wrong about. No, yeah, it was because well, it was the unrated version of Bad Santa. Oh, and I see. And there was Bad Santa too. Yeah, that's maybe maybe too too much Bad Santa talk on this show already. <laughs> Not even twenty episodes we, in we here. Could, <laughs> we could pivot to the Harold and Kumar Christmas special. Uh, let's wait till next till the end of this year, at, at the very least. Even then, hopefully, we forget about it by then. Uh, any final thoughts on I'm, the? I'm putting it. I'm putting it on my on my vision board. Uh, this. Mm, all right, we'll get to it then. Any final thoughts on the Cohen filmography before we get to Macbeth? I I mean, there's not much more that I feel like I could say that we haven't covered at this point. A couple of pro- prolific filmmakers. Um, and I look forward to the next work that they do after Tragedy of Macbeth. Or, yeah, after Tragedy of Macbeth, even though that was just a Joel Cohen picture. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure if they'll be directing together. I read a thing that Ethan Cohen doesn't want to make movies anymore, so I don't know how true that oh, is. Oh, I didn't realize that. I believe that's why they split. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, I'm definitely curious to see what else Joel Cohen does. I think if you're not familiar with the Cohen brothers, there's a lot of movies you could just jump in and enjoy. Um, their style permeates throughout, so, I mean, you could watch one movie and enjoy it, watch another one, you'll probably enjoy it, but even if you don't, you could watch another one that you'll enjoy, and you'll still pick up that Cohen brothers throughout so I definitely think there's no right answer of which movies to watch. Um, I think there's some that I don't like, but uh, you, you, other people may like them. Um, they'll definitely, I think, just give them a lot of, give them chance, watch a bunch of their movies, see how you like it. Perfect Agreed. statement. We're gonna take a break and recoup before we get to our review of the tragedy of Macbeth. <laughs> I'm Dawn. And I'm Cole. And Scottish Murders is a true crime podcast dedicated to people from or living in Scotland. Just like anywhere else in the world, these murders can be truly horrific and shocking. And we want to shine more light upon them. Join us every two weeks on Scottish Murders, where we'll bring you cases both solved and unsolved, giving you an insight into the other side of Bonnie Scotland. Find us wherever you stream your podcasts, as well as on social media. Join us there. Bye. All right, we're back with our review of The Tragedy of Macbeth. This is based, of course, upon the Shakespeare play. This is written and directed by Joel Cohen. If you are unfamiliar, I am surprised you are here, but welcome. We love having you. This is about a man who contemplates murdering a king so he can claim power for himself that's a bit of a stripped down synopsis but there it is what are you guys general thoughts on the tragedy of macbeth okay so i mean i think we me and matt share a sentiment here but i mean i just i just felt like an idiot watching this i like trying to like understand the dialogue it'd be four lines later and i'd miss miss them because i'm trying to figure out what they're talking about I, I don't do the old English well. I don't do Shakespeare well. So, I, I mean, like, visually, a great movie. I, I really loved the simplistic set design. It kind of gave it, like, you're watching a stage play um, kind of vibe. Um, I like the black and white. I think it fit well. 
but like the dialogue I could just not follow along so I was just kind of like there <laughs> witnessing <Yeah>. it <laughs> just kind of like seeing what happened rather than like picking up what's going on yeah I uh, I absolutely share that sentiment I mean I texted you guys what the first time I watched it I think I turned I only watched like a third of it the first time I tried it because I started out with the subtitles on thinking well that's usually that's how I've been watching movies lately just to because you know how sound mixing can sometimes be a problem uh, with films, and I like to have the subtitles on just so I don't miss anything as far as the dialogue. Um, but it was I, it was actually so distracting having the subtitles on, reading the subtitles and be like, what is you know? So then I turn them off, and then at that point, I, granted I had a, I had had a couple beers, but in my system by that point, so I was extra like laggy as far as my comprehension of what I was witnessing, and I eventually just gave up. I'm like, I can't do this right now. Um, I, 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 the next, the next day I went back and I ended up watching the whole thing. And for the most part, I didn't enjoy it once I gave up on trying to comprehend what the dialogue was saying. Um, I just kind of took it as like an experience, almost like a living painting to a point. Um, very atmospheric, well shot, very well acted. I think if you're a Shakespeare person, this is right up your alley. But if you're not, prepare to feel a little bit alienated. Um, so overall, I would say recommend, but with a with an asterisk. Being, it's a certain type of movie for a certain type of person to get the full experience of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. this thing is like a little gothic jewel box. The whole time, especially in the beginning... I was wondering how they filmed it, this misty, dark, often backgroundless world. The performances here are really good, especially Catherine Hunter as the witches. The script is a strong choice, for better or worse. I think good in some ways, not so great in other ways. To use the old dialogue, and not just that, but like to have this be kind of an abridged version of Macbeth, I think the strongest thing about this is adding dynamic visual elements to a stage play often the issue with play adaptation into movies is that they just look like filmed plays but this watches more like a movie um you know play is all about being in one setting whereas a movie you need people to move you need things to be moving location all that kind of stuff and i thought that was the strongest part of this movie and i'd like to talk more about specific examples a little further on Ultimately, I don't know if this really added a lot to the world of Macbeth for me personally. I mean, the visuals were nice, um, but I, you know, I it, it wasn't my favorite. As far as a recommendation, very similar to Matt, if you're not a fan of Shakespeare and you were traumatized in your high school English class, you're not going to like this one bit. But if you're a Shakespeare fan, I think this is really well filmed and acted. And you might like it. I don't think it's my favorite Shakespeare adaptation that there ever was, but it's it's very well done. I cannot deny that at all. We have Denzel Washington as Macbeth, Francis McDormand as Lady Macbeth, uh, Corey Hawkins was in this, which was really cool. Stephen Root really stood out to me. He has this brief part as the porter, which I thought was kind of the bright, shining, humorous moment of this. Um, I there any performances that stood out to you guys? Um, definitely Catherine Hunter. Um, is she, is she like an actual like contortionist? I feel like I, I, believe I feel so. like, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just her 
casting her as the witches was was a very good call in my opinion Corey hawkins i thought did really well like all his scenes he really was um stood out um so i, I was surprised to see that i thought he carried that pretty well in a movie that i really wasn't like couldn't really engage with because i couldn't understand anything i thought his performance was really good yeah, I thought uh, Moses Ingram was good as Lady Macbeth, and Ethan Hutchinson as Macduff's son was a very good young performance. Um, Denzel Washington, I thought, did a really excellent job of transitioning throughout uh, the movie. You know, in the beginning, Macbeth is a little more ponderous, a little more reluctant. He does receive this prophecy, but he, he doesn't really want to forward it through his own actions. Lady Macbeth urges him to do so. And once he becomes nobility and king, uh, he switches his performance up to become a lot more bombastic. And I, I was impressed by how he made that transition. Tyler, you mentioned to me before that you thought it was a little quick. And I, I, I agree with that. I think most of the things in this movie are a little bit quick. Um, which I think was maybe one of the bigger weaknesses of the film, but I, I can't take anything away from the performances. They were absolutely impressive, along with the sets uh, by Stefan Dechant. It was all shot on soundstage. There are no exterior shots at all, except for, I think, something at the end. And I, you know, like you said, Matt, I could look through this stuff in a museum and would be completely impressed. Yeah, I'm actually kind of glad it went quick, but again, that kind of ties back to my lack of culture i guess or whatever you want to call it my lack of uh being able to follow i've you know i haven't felt this stupid watching a movie since i watched the 355 but that was for different reasons that was because i bought a ticket to see the 355 (laughs) (laughs) yeah listen to our review of the 355 we did that last week uh what do you say we move into some spoilers you guys ready oh yeah i'm ready Let's spoil a 500-year-old play. <laughs> yeah, I I even put this in the outline. Like, spoilers, if if this thing can be spoiled. It's also like the poster is just I, you know what, I, The poster for this movie. Yeah. I, 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 will, I will say that, you know, I make that joke, but, I mean, I never watched any adaptation of Macbeth before, so. Okay, well, there we go. Fresh face. Spoiler warning. If you have not seen the following movie, please go watch that movie and come back or accept the consequences. Well, like I said before, the most impressive thing was adding uh, visuals to these these dynamics, this script. Uh, in the beginning, we have Macbeth who receives the prophecy from the witches. We get Catherine Hunter doing these monologues, doing these contortionist things that were very haunting, very mesmerizing. The prophecies, Macbeth is going to be king, and Banquo, who's played by Bertie Carvel, will father a line of kings. One of the most impressive things to me was the dagger scene. You know, is this a dagger that I see before me? Um, It has Denzel walking forward as he's giving the speech, so not just standing in one place seeing this dagger, um, but you know pondering giving his thoughts as he is moving towards it because it, it was interesting because this is a moment of questioning for Macbeth or at least you could interpret it that everything in Shakespeare is interpretable so don't listen to me but he's having this question of you know is this something through which I can achieve what has been prophesized for me and 
he is questioning, but the whole time he is moving forward, almost as though even though he is having these questions, it's like he's already made up his mind. And then at the end, we have that dagger turn into a door handle, uh, which gives this sort of little mysterious moment of, you know, maybe should he have not done, should he have not killed the king? Uh, I like that one a lot. Uh, we have Macbeth killing Duncan, the king. This is a very, like, claustrophobic, in-the-bed killing. Uh, we have, like, I thought it was interesting that the knife, like, slips for a second. It's not, like, assassin-ready, which I think was very fitting for the character. Um, I How did you guys feel about the assassination scene? Um, I, I thought it was very visceral. Um, um, I thought it was very visceral and very well shot. And, it, like, it was almost terrifying to a to a point for me yeah there was something about it and i think it was just like how like close it is and like how kind of intimate the set is like it's just the bed in him and then just seeing the knife go into his throat was just like i've seen much worse in movies but just it felt so like jarring in that scene so i think that was very well done yeah, it was almost like a lot of the violence in Fargo in that it almost happens impromptu. Like, the characters weren't even expecting it to happen, so it's kind of haphazard. I mean, obviously, Macbeth planned on killing the king, but it's, you know, this inexperienced person who is reluctant to do what they are doing right now. Uh, we have Banquo's, uh, or what Macbeth thinks is Banquo's ghost, appears as the ravens. Um this is kind of one of the moments where I felt things were moving a little fast. You know, Macbeth becomes king very quickly, and then he kind of descends into madness very quickly, which I don't think is totally out of line with the play. But like I said, I think the script rushes through this a, a little bit. I mean, bit. I feel like it, it does well enough to illustrate how quickly things can get out of control. I mean, he thought, had this, thought he had the sense of control and everything under control and then what in one scene and then it just it's a slippery slope especially considering his means of getting to the top i think that's a great point uh, and you might you know he spent he might have spent six seasons being this uh benevolent ruler and then you know he's just gonna go bad in the last season because you just want to get that star wars <laughs> <money>. <laughs> the tragedy Sorry, of Macbeth by david benioff and db weiss <laughs> Benioff, not Debbie Benioff. It doesn't matter. Who cares what his name is? Hey, you know what? They gave us a lot, so I don't want to totally trash them. Um, I just want to bring up something here, though, and like, just how terrified were old writers of ravens? <laughs> yeah, you got him, Edgar Allan Poe. They were just terrified of these birds. <laughs> I just saw them, and they're like, "Oh my God, that's a demon." <laughs> I don't know, it's interesting because, not not to give you an analysis of the raven, but the raven doesn't do anything in that poem except say one word. So I guess they're very powerful that they can just do that and be I, terrifying. I like the, I like the, uh, the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror version of that, of the raven. Yeah, I've watched that many times. The ravens did knock Tom Brady out for a whole season, so I mean, I, <laughs> I, I see the fear. That is connected to Edgar Allan Poe, believe it or not. <laughs> Why they named the team that? Uh, we have the Is it yeah really? yeah that's it's well, part yeah, of it. Poe yeah, was from Baltimore, right? Oh, I didn't know that. He was not from Baltimore, but he lived a large part of his oh. life in Baltimore. Yeah, 
Uh, the witches visit again in the water. They're sprinkling all the, the different spices in there. We have people's faces coming out of the water, and then it just shrinks back into nothing. I thought that was really stunning. Uh, the McDuff family murder scene where they just drop that kid into the fog, I think that was one of the most effective of the movie mm. for me. One thing yeah. that I... Go ahead. No, go ahead. I would say one element of this movie that didn't totally work for me was Lady Macbeth's guilt over what has been done. Um, you know, this obviously incredibly famous characterization, blood on the hands and all that. And Francis McDormand did a really good job. I just, it just seemed kind of like a brief moment instead of like a development over time. Yeah, that is that is one thing I will concede did seem too fast for me. Because like it was one one scene she's fine, next scene she's like looking ragged and talking about the guilt, her guilt about what happened. Mm. Like it almost it was kind of, it, it was kind of, kind of I guess jarring, give me whiplash a little bit. I'm like, wait, did I miss something? I think that's the issue with kind of condensing a Shakespeare play down to a minute and like uh, a minute. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> That'd be a really short story. An hour and 45 minutes. Because, uh, you know, these were long, long stage plays. Yeah, so, true. Um, I mean, you got to cut out some stuff. But, yeah, I agree. It did seem rushed. Um, and, I mean, I don't blame them. It's hard to convey that in that short of time. And you really can't make it too long. But. You know, you know, it's funny. If, with all the two and a half hour, three hour movies we had in twenty twenty one, this is probably one of the few that actually would have benefited with being longer. Yeah. And then this one was less than two hours. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I could have taken that dialogue for any longer. No, no, true. Ready, but... Me either. But <laughs> yeah. but still, I think it would have done the objectively. It would have done more justice if it was longer. You know, take an hour off of Dune, give it to Tragedy of Macbeth, and we'll be good. Yeah, I I forgot to mention that before, but on an unrelated note, I thought West Side Story was one of the movies that justified its, you know, close to two and three quarter hour runtime. Agreed. Yeah, I like that for the whole time. Uh, Macduff and Malcolm's their army when they're walking through the forest with like the branches as cover. I thought that was really visually cool. And then Macbeth's beheading, I thought was very effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, I. How did you guys feel by the end of this movie? Were you left with anything when the credits were rolling? I was kind of indifferent, honestly. Well, I shouldn't say indifferent. I I think there were some merits to it. Um, and I think if I was one that studied Shakespeare more, there would probably be more for me to think about. But like I said, I, I, I think of it more as like I was watching a living painting where like you don't you know you look unless you're an art major you don't look most people don't look at a painting and then start keep thinking about it after they walk away from it i would kind of compare that to this movie where like i watched it it was visually stunning it was well made it's got merits to it but it didn't really leave much of a lasting impression on me beyond that i mean i beg to differ i've been thinking about a single painting this entire time that we've been recording so <laughs> that's why i've been distracted was it Macaulay I, uh, Culkin in Scream? Uh, no, but it's similar to that. Ah! <laughs> that's how, I, that's I, how I, I picture that painting sounding. 
I just want to say, like, this is going to illustrate where my brain was at this point of the movie. Um, you know, think less of me, if you will. But when they said, all hail the King of Scotland, my first thought was, no, that's Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, same. Uh, same here, actually. <laughs> I was like, who was a better King of Scotland? <laughs> Forrest Whitaker. The answer is always Forrest Whitaker. I thought there he was wasn't some... actually the king of Scotland. He was not. He was Idi Amin. He was not. No. <laughs> very, very different person. <laughs> Good movie, though. Yeah. Uh, I thought there were some themes that stood out here that got through. I don't. I don't know if this is more Shakespeare's own writing or the film. I can't really tell. But um, this is a great play about like what do people do with the idea of determinism and free will right we, we get this prophecy at the beginning and if something if you are told this is going to happen to you in your life what do you do with that information because we talk about the idea of determinism all the time but we don't live our lives as though things are determined right i'm speaking right now to the microphone that's a choice so even if i think that this was determined to happen you know it's I don't act as though it was determined to happen. I act as though it was a choice for me to do this. Um, so it's interesting the, the things that Macbeth does um, to sort of justify his belief in, oh, well, this needs to happen, so I need to do something like this. Uh, also, like the cost of exalting your lot in life, what it can cost you personally, and that's connected to like this insatiable cycle of power. Not only does Macbeth kill the king to become the king but now he's worried about all the other people who might want to kill him to become the king so it's you think that you're going to reach a mountain peak at a certain point in life um but it, you know it's very hard to get there and achieve peace which you know forgive my my philosophy english class <laughs> see i just want to mention it might be your choice to be recording but the guy with the gun right off screen here to my head is yeah. making me do this <laughs> Can I ask what he's getting out of this? Uh, I'm not going to say it because it's a family-friendly podcast. <laughs> I'm going to refrain from the comment I was going <laughs> to... Interesting. But also, I feel like this movie would have benefited if, like, after he stabbed him in the throat in this visceral scene, if he just broke into, like... The Lion King's I just can't wait to be king. <laughs> so. I think it would have been better if they everyone was wearing Hawaiian shirts half open and running around Venice Beach. That's true. Yeah, true. Yeah. That's that's the best Shakespeare adaptation. <laughs> Although the Lion King is Hamlet, so you're not far off the mark there. See, I'm a Shakespeare expert. And West Side Story is basically Romeo and Juliet, so Yeah. It's all Shakespeare here. That went into one of the elements that I found difficult to swallow in West Side Story, but we'll talk about that another day. Uh, another we should thing do that... like a we should do like a bonus episode or something if we feel like riffing about that. Oh, I feel like it. Uh, there was another thing that really came when Mr. Washington was speaking. And that's during the the out out brief candle monologue of. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. And it just got me thinking about this play talking about how silly pride is and like this question of why do we feel the need to achieve the things we do? 
I feel like we all kind of get this pressure every day to like, well, I got to get here. I got to get somewhere else. I got to do this thing. I have to like leave some sort of mark. And this play, at least to me, is asking why. Like, why is he doing such a violent thing? Why is he killing somebody else's family, knowing that at the end, it, it's all going to amount to the same thing? So I, I don't know. It, that's definitely food for thought that I like to chew on. Well, I think it was kind of like a, so he's trying to subvert the destiny. Like, if he can kill everyone that wants to take over, then he can beat the, um, like, what's set out for him. Yeah. That's how I took him. Yeah. If you want to watch a great movie about prophecies and whether or not they can be broken, check out the Lego movie. <laughs> it has a great prophecy in it. A lot of yeah. Chris Pratt. On I was going to say, too much Chris Pratt in that, though. <clears throat> I, I was fine with it for that movie. I was well. That was back when Chris Pratt was like tolerable. Who's your favorite Chris? It's mm, tough. I got I got to go with either Evans or Hemsworth. Not Catan. Catan. Uh, no, not Catan. I'm gonna go with Chris Moltisanti. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you didn't even watch many Saints of Newark. I did not. <laughs> Come on. Isn't he only like the narrator of that? He's not in it. He is. It's like his ghost is narrating. Which I, I thought I thought it was cool. It was a, it framed the movie in an interesting way. Any final thoughts on the tragedy of Macbeth? So I just want to say like it's it's a beautifully shot movie, but I'm struggling to recommend it. Because I feel like a lot of people will be like me. I don't know. Maybe I'm just an idiot, and they won't be. Maybe they'll. Be. But it's just just so hard to, con- to understand some of it that like I, I I like you guys said earlier. I struggle to recommend it, but it it's beautifully shot, and I got to give it props for that. But I don't know if many people would get enjoyment out of it. I agree. It's obviously, very... it's not Shakespeare. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, that was it. I was gonna say I totally agree. Um... It's a very particular, it's like a niche movie, I think. Like, you have to fit into a certain crowd to get maximum enjoyment out of it. You have to be, like, in the, you know, studied Shakespeare camp, fan of Shakespeare camp. Um, or just a fan of, like, beautiful, beautifully, fan of just well-shot, aesthetically pleasing movies. Um, if you fall into either of those camps, then there's something for you. But I still would struggle to say that the whole package is really an easy sell mm-hmm. like it's like recommending halloween kills to the halloween and real housewives of beverly hills fans you know like you got to be in that to those two pools to really get a full recommend of halloween kills and if you're not one of those three people you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah Hey, yeah, it's we're small but mighty. Okay. <laughs> I just I just want to say one more thing too because it feels like I'm bashing it, but I'm not. I'm glad Joel Cohen was able to make the movie he wanted to make. Yeah. I'm, I'm all for directors doing stuff that like it might not be the mainstream appeal. Uh, if they want to make it, I, I'm happy he has that outlet. So I'm I'm definitely curious to see what else he has in store. And praise A24 for bringing movies like this into existence. Or at least helping bring movies like this into existence. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I'm glad it was made. I would have, I think, preferred this visual style with 
a, a Joel Cohen original script. I mean, not that mm-hmm. he, yeah. he did adapt it himself, but an original story from him that I would have preferred. But it's not what he preferred, and that was the important thing. So that is our review of The Tragedy of Macbeth. We want to know what you think. What did you like this movie? What's your favorite Coen Brothers movie? Anything else, please write to us at silverscreensaverspod at gmail.com. If you like the show, you could really help us out by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify now. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ScreensaversPod, and our Facebook is Silver Screen Savers Podcast. Matt, where can you be found on the internet? You can find me over at, at MattyXSturds, S-T-U-R-D-Z. That's on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. I've started hopping on Letterboxd more. I've started compiling some lists of just cumulative all the movies I've been watching this year. I've been keeping track of them, rating them. Um, some hits, some not so hits. Um, if you're curious about that, find me on Letterboxd. I've also been keeping track of my ratings of all the podcast movies of the year. Plan on doing a nice little compilation list there. Um, it's a pretty fun, um, fun platform. So if you're not on Letterbox, definitely check it out. Totally, Tyler. What about you? Find me on Instagram and Twitter at Tyler Sipkus. And you can find me online, Instagram and Twitter at Michael underscore Gallant, and on Letterbox at M Gallant. I was slacking there for a while, but I recently reviewed some stuff, so I'm a little bit caught up. Thank you all so much for listening. We love having you. We'll see you next time for our retrospective on the Scream franchise, all leading up to the new Scream. Not Scream 5, but Scream. We'll see you then. 5 Cream. (laughs) 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 That was dumb. Uh, Take care, everybody. Silver Screen Savers podcast was co-created, written, hosted, and produced by Michael Gallant, Tyler Sukkis, and Matt Sturdivant. With additional editing by Matt Sturdivant. Intro music by Charles Michelle via Pixabay. Logo design by Nathan Seidel.